Welcome back to The Shorter, a podcast on The Shorter Catechism where two pastors take 20-something minutes to confess their way through the 107 questions of the What's Minister Shorter Catechism. I'm your host, Tommy Park, and I'm joined by my co-host, Stephen Spinaweber. Welcome back from our hiatus, good buddy. Yeah, man. It's spring is thinning out. Sprung. Sprung. Spr- it sprang. Whatever. It was get- a while ago. It's getting hot. You can fry an egg out here. That's true. Welcome to Florida. My garden absolutely loves it. I say my garden. It's my wife's garden. She has the green thumb in our family. It gets some some weird looks occasionally, that green thumb of hers. Not everybody has those. But we're growing zucchini. Cucumbers ready to be harvested in a couple days. Cilantro. Ooh, we like those things. We like cucumbers. We will invite you over. Do it. I'm glad you like I don't actually like cucumbers. My kids will eat cucumbers... We get these little ones from our little farm box, and they'll just eat them like they're a carrot. That's crazy. I don't eat them like that. I like the the nice slice where it's almost like a chip, a little hummus. That's where it's at. That's where I feel like I'm actually eating healthy. Blech. But I also like my chips and queso. Okay. There you go. Guacamole. What was I going to say? You, I mean, we had an eventful couple weeks, and my parents came into town. That was part of the reason for our little break there. My parents came in and we had a fun little ER visit for our four-week-old. He is doing fine. Praise the Lord. Uh, the saints here at Westminster were praying for us. But those little fun parenting crises where you're like, man, you got to take my kid in. So we came through that stronger than we went in, I hope. And uh, you and I happened to be at the hospital same exact time, same day, right? Something yeah, like that. we were there with our oldest. So eventful, li- eventful days in the lives of the shorter podcast. Yep, there you have it. We've mm-hmm. used our health insurance wisely, <laughs> and we've used. I don't think that we can. We're okay. So let's just say it now. There will be another two week break coming up soon because we'll have general assembly. Yep, you're going to go on a much needed vacation. Yep, and then we've got a bunch of interviews. Really yeah, good ones. So, so yeah, so we're wrapping up, you know, as kind of this final turn, but it'll be like a couple weeks. We'll look at our questions today, faith and repentance, a little break, and then we'll finish the final lap with the, the means of grace. So I'm excited. We haven't given up. Don't give up on us. Just just wait for us. We'll be there in two something weeks. Yeah, just be patient. Be patient. Well and worst case scenario, you can always re listen to an episode. Tell your friends about it. That is the worst case scenario, I think. (laughs) Over the last 12 weeks or so, we've discussed the demands of the Ten Commandments. We've talked about what God requires and what he forbids using the moral law, which is summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments, and having studied through them, albeit in a very brief manner, we only ever skim the surface here. I think we can all say without hesitation that we cannot keep this law, which is where we come today. We're dealing with questions 82 through 84 of the Shorter Catechism. I'll read them, and then we'll get started. Question 82, is any man able to perfectly keep the commandments of God? No mere man, since the fall, is able in this life perfectly to keep the commandments of God, but doth daily break them in thought, word, and deed. Question 83, are all transgressions of the law equally heinous? Some sins in themselves, and by reason of several aggravations, are more heinous in the sight of God than others. In question 84, 
What doth every sin deserve? Every sin deserveth God's wrath and curse, both in this life and that which is to come. And our three points today, we're going to have one for each question, basically. The first is fallen mankind's inability. Is fallen mankind able to keep the law? We say no, so fallen mankind's inability. Then we've got the heinousness of particular sins. This is probably going to be our most controversial question, might be altogether new for some of our listeners, this idea that God sees some sins as more heinous than others. And then the third point, the seriousness of every sin. What does every sin deserve? So, Tommy, this first point, man's inability, this is kind of a hot hot button issue, right? Man's ability, inability, will, free will. Yeah, no, I think, yeah, so the first point is basically I think the confession, you know, like you you started the the whole thing, you know, we've walked through the Ten Commandments. Now, where are we, and how do we do with them? You know, like I can't think of another sport, but Major League Baseball. Like you can fail seventy percent of the time, and you're an all star. You're no, you're a Hall of Famer. Well, with the law, I don't know if I'm seventy thirty percent good. You know, you could be hitting ninety nine point nine nine nine, but if yeah. you're not batting a thousand, yeah, you're in a world of hurt. But really reflecting on the Ten Commandments of what how the Catechism puts it, word, thought, and deed, is that we we're never we don't have a great batting average, and so. But going to this question, our first point particularly is that the question is, and I think the Catechism wisely puts us into the sense of ability. What can we do, and mm-hmm. how does the law affect us? And and like you were saying, there is a sense of debate of, and we'll allude to it, but the whole idea of free will. You know, do we have free will? Do we don't have free will? And the short of it is, I think our, our free will is wrapped up into our ability. And and here the catechism is saying, without the grace of God, we are we have the inability to keep God's law. You make a great point, and I love your analogy, because God's law requires that we bat a thousand. The question is not, what does the law require? We've, we've settled that issue. It requires perfect and perpetual, perfect personal perpetual obedience in the entire man. But the question is, are we able to bat a thousand? Do we have a strikeout on our record already? By virtue of original sin, yes, and the consequence, you could call this a consequence of original sin, total depravity, we're totally depraved. Can anything good come through a corrupted instrument? So we're going to get into it. Scripture is clear that man does not have the ability to choose God, to obey his law perfectly, whether before or after conversion, whether before or after, certainly not before, because listen to Romans chapter eight, verses five through eight. For those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh, But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Now listen to this. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Just repeating there for emphasis. It is a question of ability. An unregenerate man, our minds being enslaved by fleshly, earthly desires. We cannot, we don't have the ability to please God. 
Yeah. Paul's clear. Yeah. Another great verse, Ephesians 2. We were what? We were dead in our sins and trespasses. Uh, so, what can a dead person do? Nothing. You know, and so, we just strike out on the whole sense of ability, another way that Paul kind of sums it up. But John Paul, fifteen five. Yeah, yeah. Apart from, from me, me, you can do nothing. Right. Yeah. So, which is nice because many, and we, we're only using John and Peter, you'll see some, and Paul here, but this whole idea of our inability is all over the scriptures, mm-hmm. in particular the New Testament. But you got Jeremiah, our heart is deceitful. I mean, it's just the case of our ability to do good. It's not a very good case. Apart from, from the grace of yeah. God, right? And image that comes to mind, I just listened to a sermon recently, Ezekiel 37. What's a better picture of our spiritual condition apart from the Holy Spirit breathing new life into us than a valley full of dry bones? Yeah. Well, even, you know, Jesus and John puts it there in Nicodemus. What? You have to be what? You have to be born again. Um, and this is the analogy I use, and maybe this is might be too much information, but because often people hear this, particularly with the act of salvation, that we are what? We are people who are drowning in the ocean, flapping our arms and screaming out. Your water wingies didn't save you? No, they popped. And what? And Jesus comes with his helicopter, and he reaches down, and we, in our desperation, reach up and grab hold of him, and he pulls us out. Well, that's not the biblical picture. The biblical, biblical picture is that we are the bottom of the ocean, dead from our sins and trespasses. Again, we've, you know, Ephesians 2, John 15, uh, Jeremiah, uh, Ezekiel, all those are giving us this picture. And what happens is that Jesus dives down, goes all the way down to the bottom of the ocean, grabs hold of us, pulls us all the way up, breathes new life into us. And the only thing we can do and respond is wraps our, our arms around us in faith and repentance. And, and we'll kind of see that as this catechism kind of gives us a full picture. But um, The issue lies with our nature. Yeah. By virtue of our totally depraved natures, all our affections are totally depraved and totally opposite God. We don't want anything to do with God unless God sends his spirit into our hearts, changes our hearts, and gives us a new set of desires. So this is why we emphasize in the Reformed tradition, yes, election, but election takes place in, so it God elects us from before the foundations of the earth, but we aren't the kind of people that just say, well, if you're elected, you can kind of sit in your hands and, and just not do anything. No, choose this day whom you will serve. You think of Joshua, you think of the calls to repent and believe, why are we able to do all those? Because going on in the background is God's having first loved us, but we are called to love him. We are called to believe, to have faith. And and all those, and we're about to get to it. All those things are possible because of the grace of God. And only, yeah, only because of the grace of God. So, fourfold state of man, Thomas Boston. Good guy. Great guy. It'll be great to talk to him in heaven. Yeah, yeah. Fourfold state of man, talking about the four phases, you could say, of mankind pre and post fall. Before the fall, we would say that Adam and Eve were able to sin and able not to sin. The Latin for this is called posse peccare, posse non peccare. So they were able to sin, they had the will 
to either choose right or wrong, they chose wrongly, and then all mankind descending from them by ordinary generation sinned in them and fell with them in that first transgression. Yep. The second phase or the result of that is what not, we call total depravity. Yeah, not able to not to sin. Yeah, we'll get, there's a lot of nots and ables. But <laughs> basically, the only thing we can do from Genesis 3 until our salvation is sin. You know, and the moral law, the Ten Commandments really sp- spell that out. The question that we're talking about and you know, thought, word, and deed. Um, you know, not just our actions. Remember that what we think and what we do and what we don't do, even though we know we should do it, all those things are going to affect. And so from Genesis 3 on... That's the the posture of humans, mm-hmm. uh, and you see it particularly, um, like judges, for example, that whole book, doing what's right in their own eyes. Yeah, when you don't have a king, you're going to do what you think is right, and and life comes undone, as it were, as mm-hmm. we see in Genesis or uh, Judges. And then the third phase is able not to sin, passe non peccare. This is the person who's been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, and now we have the ability to say no to sin, whereas before, he who is participates in sin, he's a slave to sin, and slaves don't say no to their masters, whereas before we could not say no, now we can, because we have a new master, we have Christ sitting on the throne of our hearts, it's no longer our sin, and so this is the description of our regenerate state. We can resist and yeah. flee temptation. Yeah, another phrase I think we have used is this already and not yet reality. You know, that there there are some things that are true of us, but they're not 100% true yet. Um, and so there's this, we have this ability not to sin, uh, sanctification, some other terms that we can use, but also that we, uh, because we're not there yet. We, we know, still do. We still do. But we look forward to that day, that final phase of our growth in grace and we look forward to the new heavens and new earth wherein we will not be able to sin in heaven you can't sin so that's non posse peccare our glorified state yeah and i think that's an important thing to understand is that that is probably the and i think we talked about this back in questions 37 38 is that that's what we're longing for like i work with college students what they're longing for they're Degrees so they can get a job, they can get married, they can get the house with a white picket fence. But that's, but that's not our ultimate destination. Uh, what we desire is for us to be the already coming true, a hundred percent, and that's where that fourth state comes in. So even in this third state, because this is if if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, you're in this third state, even though you may not feel like you're having victory over sin. 1 Corinthians 10.13 is true of you. There is no temptation uncommon to man that God sent your way, but he will always provide a way of escape and that we might be able to bear it. We don't have to sin anymore as regenerate Christians. However, we do. And so we need a perfect record of righteousness. We can't bat a thousand. We have sins in the past, and, and we sin every day in thought, word, and deed, albeit not to the degree that we did before we were regenerate, praise the Lord, but we need a perfect record of righteousness that comes from outside because clearly it's not coming from within, which really gets us back to the first use of the law. And what does the law do for us? Shows us that we need a savior. So Augustine kind of puts it this way. He says, the law binds us as we try to fulfill its requirements. 
and we become weary in our weakness under it to know how to ask the help of grace. You know, and so, I mean, this is the reality. As we look at the Ten Commandments constantly, what, what it does, it, it shows us we're not there yet. And what we need and what we need to cry out um, is for help. And the only one who can help us is God alone. And I think here at Westminster particularly, I'm, I mean, to my knowledge, every Sunday you usually use one of the Ten Commandments. Every in your, Sunday. In your confession of sin. And I think, you, you know, you don't say this, well, maybe you do. But, but you're doing that because of this reality, is that we're using the law to show our need um, of forgiveness, our own confession that we don't measure up, we can't, you know, and that we need uh, God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit to come and help us. Yeah. Thomas Watson expands on what Augustine says, how the law bids us to come uh, in our weariness from trying to work it out perfectly and we can't. We see our need of grace. Watson says, what does the law do for us? Why does God permit such an inability in man to keep the law, to humble us? Man is a self-exalting creature, and if he has but anything of worth, he is ready to be puffed up. But when he comes to see his deficiencies and failings and how far short he comes of the holiness and perfection which God's law requires, it pulls down the plumes of his pride and lays them in the dust. He weeps over his inability. And then, as he does that, it makes us flee to him, flee to Christ to be his friend and answer for him all the demands of the law and set him free in the course of justice. This is Christ's answers for us. He satisfies the demands of the law. And so we go to him. And as we go to the second point now, the law condemns, or we realize that we would be condemned if we would be justified by the law, but it drives us to Christ. And it also causes us to see our sins in ways that we probably hadn't before. So question 83 just by way of review, are all transgressions of the law equally heinous? Some sins in themselves, and by reason of several aggravations, are more heinous in the sight of God than others. That statement, when I first went through the Shorter Catechism, struck me as odd. Like, maybe I understood it on the surface, but I thought, where do they get that biblically? Or what's meant by these, these several aggravations uh, that they identify? So, Thomas Vincent, in his commentary on the Shorter Catechism, he talks about sins in themselves, that first part of the question, and then he sort of teases out what some of these aggravations are. So what are what sins in themselves, Tommy, are worse than other sins? Well, how Thomas Watson or Vincent, there's so many Thomases. You know, Thomas is such a good, powerful name. Distinguished. Yeah. Basically, you know, how he puts his, the, the, those first, the first... Four. First four commandments, the first table, as some would put it, uh, are more uh, heinous than the than the ones. So the ones that are towards God. Wait a minute. You mean to tell me that the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, or taking God's name in vain, is more serious than murder, Tommy? Uh, yes. Do explain. Well, I'll put it this way. Like, I'm married. Um, so... If, if I lied or did something straight to my wife, sorry, Stephen, it's a little worse than me doing it to you. So in the first four commandments, us not honoring our God, creator, king, lord, savior, redeemer, friend, 
continue that list. If we don't do what's do his honor of his glory of who he is, the the whole posture of how we love our neighbor is going to come from these of, of us loving our God. The R.C. Sproul that said violations of God's law are cosmic treason. These first four are the most overt and direct affronts to God. It's a big deal. Yeah. I mean, I think just like for your example, I think what you said, murder and God's name in vain. Um, like if, if, I mean, both of those are serious. So we're going to talk about that here in a second. Right. Um, so it's not like, you know, I stub my toe and that's not that big of a deal. Um, and, you know, say a curse word or, or use God's name in a, in a vain sense. But how we view our God in such a way uh, that we would honor his name in such a way would also in turn give us a posture of a humble posture as we just looked at to love our neighbor well, um, to have the right thoughts after it. So, I mean, there's just a lot of it. It goes back and forth and it's all connected. And, um, and I think that's important to realize is that there is this kind of this greater and lesser value, however they do relate to one another. Well, think of the sixth commandment. So, sixth commandment, wherein or in what does the ultimate value of man you know, find its place? It's in the fact that he's made in the image of God. And so, the sixth commandment really is heinous most because we sin against God in that, you know, in, in yes, taking away the life of our neighbor, it's an affront against God in whose image that person is made. And this, this I think, sometimes strikes people as being a bit odd. You're like, you really think that, you know, violating the Sabbath day or all these other things, they're, they're greater than murder. God says in his word, which is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. That's the summary of the first four commandments. What's the second? Love your neighbor as you love yourself. You can't love neighbor as you love yourself, or you can't love neighbor well until you first love God. So God takes priority over everything. Now, well, also he, how we, how we love God only comes in response of how he has loved us. And when we understand that, and we see this kind of Ephesians five, you know, we as we as I love my spouse, I only love my spouse in turn of realizing how much God has loved me. Since He has laid His life down for me, I get to lay my life down for my wife and for others. And so, all we're trying to say in probably about six minutes is sin is serious, particularly God's sins that are addressed or towards God is right bad. Now, we have several aggravations. I'm just going to read a couple of these because you're right. What is that thing? What's that SAT word that you keep on saying? What is that? What would you? Mm-hmm. You just said it. Aggravations? Yeah. Yeah. So, what does that mean? Aggravations, it just means circumstances. That's an SAT word. We're trying to educate our... Oh, don't make me go back and take the SAT. The status of the offender. So, you get the... These are circumstances. So, what are the circumstances that make some sins worse than others? The status of the offender. You think of somebody... Like in the Old Testament, the prophets decried the wicked rich and the powerful who abused the poor. They used their positions of authority for self-gain and self-promotion. You also think of aggravations, some sins being worse than others. If I were to just, you know, 
physically assault you right now, put you in a headlock and chokehold. Don't do it. I'll put WWE style. Double chicken wing and That's not over. as bad as if I'd done that same thing to a four-year-old child. I would kick your butt if you did that to a four-year-old child. Right. The status of the offended, they're in a position of vulnerability. And so you look at the prophets too. They say, you have abused the fatherless, the widow, the orphan, so on and so forth. Also, you have the place wherein a sin is committed. So you could think of those sins that were committed in the sight of God at the temple uh, that he took those very seriously, Nadab and Abihu. And I think this one's probably the easiest to understand, sins against knowledge. It's bad, say, for example, if my son steals a toy from his sister. The first time he ever stole a toy from his sister, we'd say, read, that's wrong. You can't do that. That's a sin, but it would be more sinful if after I've just said, don't take that from your sister, he looks me in the eyes and still takes the toy. That's a willful sin. And I think there's, we know that instinctually. Because if we've told somebody something and they do the exact opposite of what we told them, we're more angry when they sin in that way than we were than before we had told them. So there's an error though. I'm going to use the phrase because maybe you've used it. I've used it before in my life. It was kind of just, yeah, that makes sense. I never questioned it. All sin is the same in God's sight. That's nowhere in the Bible. Not that I've found. You found it yet? No. People who use that phrase, and the way that I used it I would say this, go. the result of sin. Mm-hmm. What's the... All sin results in death. Yeah, and that's what we're about to get to, and that's why I was kind of holding back, so... Don't let the cat out of the bag. I know. So, somebody says that, and they say, well, God sees all sin the same. What I think well-meaning Christians, when they use that phrase, what they're trying to say is, my little sins are a really big deal. Uh, the lustful look that I have at the woman, no, I didn't commit adultery with her, but even my lustful looks, like Jesus says, that's that's a sin. Yeah, Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount. Yeah. I get it. There are other people who will use that phrase in an abusive way, and they'll say, well, you know, me committing adultery or me stealing $100,000, all sin is the same in God's sight, and so it's really no more, it's not a bigger deal than stealing a blow pop. It's like, wait a minute, <laughs> you know that's not true. And I think that people can rationalize their sin with stuff like this. We take sin lightly if we're not careful. Yeah, and I think since we are created in the very image of God, and you've kind of already pointed this out, is you know, when we see the abuse of power or authority, you know, that rubs us more than sibling versus sibling. Mm-hmm. You know, and so you look at the old testament too, God made different provisions for the person who had committed manslaying cities of refuge than the person who was a cold-blooded murderer. So even the way that penalties are enforced in the old covenant, it's clear that there are some sins that are more heinous in the sight of God than others. However, as you said, boom, here's the cat. Every sin deserves death. The littlest and the biggest. Yeah, and this is this is why we have Jesus. You know, this is why he he's the one who lived it perfectly on our behalf, every thought, word, and deed. Um, because what we deserve is death because of even the smallest little thing that we've done. The soul that sins yeah. shall die. Yeah. Yep. And so, but Sean Michael Lucas he he talked about this 
when uh, we interviewed him not long ago, right? Yeah, when he pointed out uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith 15.4, mm-hmm. uh, where it says, there is no sin so small, but it deserves damnation. So there is no sin so great that will bring damnation upon those who truly repent. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. And this, I mean, and this is why I love the Shorter Catechism, particularly in this back half, is that what has it done? It's laid out the Ten Commandments, where we stand in light of those Ten Commandments. Um, it's given us our ability and the lack of our ability with the fall, but it, but it doesn't leave us there. So what? Do, and this will be next week, but you know, it leads us towards that we need to see Jesus for who He truly is. We need to fit, believe that and repent, and then He doesn't leave us alone. That He gives us these means of grace. Uh, to live in faith as we continue this journey to that that final state that we talked about of glorification. Mm -hmm. So So our smallest sins, they merited, they required the death, the incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus to atone for them. So there's no sin that we should overlook and say, eh, no big deal. So those people that use that phrase, I I get you, I'm with you there. And... um, but for those people that are overcome by their sin as well, and they think, I'm such a great sinner, you know, Lord, have mercy on me, there's great encouragement. There is no sin so great that it can damn anyone who truly repents. So no sin so small that God didn't, Christ didn't die for it. No sin too big that his blood can't atone for it. Amen. Amen. We're at time. Oh, man. Can we make up, you know, another 20 minutes for all the weeks that we missed? You got 20 minutes worth of stuff to talk about? No. Me neither. Well, thanks, everybody. Appreciate you coming back. We are looking forward to getting back on the horse and then off the horse and then back on the horse again. Until we, As we do that, keep it short. Now let me hear you say thought, word, and deep thought. Yeah.